You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young. We are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan. And we are here with a serial entrepreneur, Mac Lackey. Now, if you don't know Mac Lackey, I want you to go on LinkedIn right now and type in M-A-C-L-A-C-K-E-Y, and you will know why the next 30 minutes are something you need to listen to. He is a serial entrepreneur, most recently starting an organization called Exit DNA. Now, let's talk about just business in general. There are a thousand internet gurus out there who can tell you how to start a business. Many more would preach this, the same sermon of, you know, be your own boss, uh, but many of them, you know, they can tell you how to grow your business while still enjoying life. And, and they can also teach you how to exit your business successfully. And also what we mean by that is sell it for a lot of money and enjoy life. Now, Mac is a serial entrepreneur. When I say that, he is. He is the founder of Mountain Khakis. He was on the board of directors for Lending Tree. He is a founder and CEO of Kick, which was sold to NBC Sports. He's a founder of ISL Football, and he is now a founder of Exit DNA. And we are so excited to talk a little bit more about his business. Now, Mac is a Charlotte kid who, by his own admission, made mediocre grades in high school at East Mech. Go East Mech. Uh, got kicked out of his D1 college where he was a soccer star, which I love it. I was also, a, I wouldn't say a star, but I was a soccer player. Um, and where does he go from there? I mean, from that standpoint, you're like, everything's up against him. Well, Mac, he got his act together and became an All-American at a second school, made straight A's, played professional soccer, and then started to build and sell companies for seven to eight figures apiece. I don't know what else I can tell you about this guy but to have him start talking. So thank you so much, Mac, for joining us on this episode of the Brand Builders Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I appreciate that uh, overly kind intro. So <laughs> thank you very much. Man, so Mac, thanks again for joining us. This is awesome. Super interesting. And you have quite a story. Tell us about life growing up in Charlotte. And um, we, we obviously know there was a lot of soccer involved. Yeah, so... My life, I think of my life in kind of two big buckets. You know, the first bucket was all about soccer. I mean, that was really my passion. Growing up, I started playing at a, a local YMCA uh, out. I actually was born in Charlotte. We moved to Mint Hill, a little suburb of Charlotte. And uh, so soccer was kind of my passion for, and most of my dreams were related to that. And so thankfully, um, as the the quick sort of bio indicated, you know, I was able to play soccer at a reasonably high level, check off a lot of my kind of goals and dreams. But that, yeah, that defined a lot of my early life. And soccer, particularly where I was living in kind of Mint Hill and Matthews at my age was not the most popular sport. So it was something that, uh, that I had to pursue myself. A lot of my friends played baseball and football and other sports. So, but yeah, that was a big part of my life. So tell me, you you get out of, of playing college soccer at two different universities, Wake Forest and then Barry. And, you know, I, I tell people when you're playing a, a college sport, you're putting everything into that. That's where your passion lies. And there's a lot of kind of competitive drive in that. And when you leave college, it's difficult for a lot of athletes to turn that, you know, passion and competitiveness into something that's different, whether that's business or whatever it is. So tell us about that journey because you have been CEO, you have created amazing companies and a lot of companies in a lot of different directions, right? Whether it's a recruiting company, whether it's an apparel company, whether it's a sports company, like you literally have been in all the different buckets. So tell us, how did you turn from being, 
you know, that professional soccer player, I say college soccer player, professional soccer player into this serial entrepreneur and tell us a little bit about those journey uh, at the early stages. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I look at in hindsight, things are a lot more clear. Uh, Steve Jobs used to say, you know, you can connect dots looking backwards. Um, but really for me, I picked my head up uh, after playing soccer and I realized that I didn't have any skills. I mean, I, you know, I was not a, I didn't take a business class in college. I didn't take an entrepreneurial class. Uh, I was a psychology major and I had applied to, to grad school for psychology and sort of deferred it to play soccer. And uh, so I, I really was like, I don't know what I'm going to do for a career. And fortunately, I uh, had a friend that I'd played soccer with that was working for a startup and I was hired in the marketing department. And so I actually had a, an actual job for about six months. Um, but this first company was so interesting to me, even though the subject matter was kind of educational software, I wasn't passionate about that. But every day I would show up and we were doing something different. You know, we're learning to write code. We're making cold calls. We're taking out the trash. And that startup energy was just so powerful for me that the uh, I met an engineer uh, that, that he and I were working together and probably not knowing any better. We just decided that we could do this ourselves, resigned, started our first company. And that was the first quarter of 1995. And one of the greatest gifts uh, for an entrepreneur is timing. And I was really fortunate. We started an internet company shortly after Netscape launched its commercial web browser. So we were right at the beginning of the internet kind of wave. And, uh, and that's how I got started, um, which, you know, it's, again, it was a, it's kind of a windy path to become an entrepreneur. But once I started, I, I could never look back. So you, you've been a part of some pretty well-known brands, Mountain Khakis, KYCK.com, Soccer App, Lending Trees, Board of Directors. When you started in each of those, did you have the mindset of a for-sale company or were you going to ride those things off into the sunset? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, my my despite my kind of resume and, and track record, if you will, in terms of selling companies, that was never the plan. You know, our first company we started because we wanted to have our own business. We were excited about the internet and what the potential would, would mean for businesses. And so almost every turn, I had something I was really excited about, really passionate about, and I wanted to build it. Um, that first company was really the only one where someone came in kind of out of the blue. We were, you know, we'd been building the company for three years. And although we were profitable, we were pouring every dollar back into the business. As a matter of fact, my co-founder and I were meeting for coffee, you know, once a week, basically, you know, crying over coffee to see if we could make it another week personally without getting paid because we were really trying to grow this business. And in 1998, someone came in, actually several companies came in and said, hey, what you guys have built is really valuable. We want to buy it. And, you know, we sold the company for eight figures in our 20s. And it was such an eye-opening experience that if you work really hard and you create a ton of value, there is this possibility or potential of monetizing that, you know, benefiting from what you've built. So until we sold that business, that was not even in my mind. It was such a, a valuable outcome that going forward, I never built a business so I could sell it, but I always had in my mind 
if I build this the right way, if I create enough value, someone's going to want to buy it. They're going to want to hopefully pay me a lot of money for it. So it was always back of mind, but almost every one of my companies I would have kept for 25 years if someone hadn't come in and, you know, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So you, um, you have obviously been very successful in your life in a lot of different areas. And one of the, the neat things that, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs on here and they might preach work, work, work 24 seven. You know, I put in the time I put in 10 years and I didn't see my kids and, you know, things that a lot of people might not even be proud of, but you have a completely different philosophy on that. And how did you break away from that kind of mold of I'm going to work 20 hours a day until I'm successful? Yeah. What interesting timing too. When I tell you the story, um, I actually got chills when you're asking me the question. Um, so there's a, there's a very distinct moment in time that was almost exactly 21 years ago, which is, you know, I was in my twenties. I had already actually sold my second business. Um, so I'd had sort of quote unquote success by a lot of standards. And my first daughter was about to be born in August of 2000. I sold my second company in July. I'm staring at, you know, my daughter being born and I pretty much went into a depression because what was happening in my mind is I was thinking, you know, a lot of my identity and life and passion and focus is all wrapped up into Mac being this hard driving entrepreneur and doing innovative stuff and traveling all over the world. And yet I'm thinking I've got this daughter coming along and I wanted to be the type of dad who was there for everything. And the way I had been working, you know, candidly, I was one of those like hustle, hustle, sleep on the floor in the office kind of guys. Um, but not because I felt like I needed to grind it out. I was just so excited about what we were building. I was really passionate to be an entrepreneur. So anyway, long story short, when when I'm about to have my daughter, I'm thinking, you know, this everyone's telling me like, Mac, you cannot work that hard and be around your kid. And if you're around your kid all the time, your business is going to suffer. And so I made a decision in August of 2000 that I was not going to accept that trade-off. I had no idea how it was going to work, but I was going to continue to build companies that scaled and that mattered to me. But I was also pretty much pledging to my daughter that I'm going to be home for dinner. I'm going to coach your soccer team. I'm going to carve the pumpkins in your class. And the reason I say I got chills is because my daughter turns 21 tomorrow and, uh, I dropped her off for her freshman year in college at NYU two years ago. And during that time, from her birth to dropping her off as a freshman in college, I built and sold four more companies, but I was at everything. I was at every play. I coached every team. I was the class dad and pumpkin carver home for dinner at five o'clock. And so I feel so strongly that entrepreneurs not only don't have to, they shouldn't make those kind of trade-offs because I know now with a lot of uh, you know experience and, and outcomes behind me that making that decision actually helps you build a better business and scale faster and be more efficient. So it's, it's really the opposite of what everybody's sort of preaching with this hustle culture. And I'm not saying don't work hard. I did work hard, but I made it a priority to be home for dinner with my daughters at five o'clock. And then I could go back to work if I needed to, or I could work on a Sunday because I was at a play on Tuesday. And so, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's something I'm really passionate about. So now all of these things have led you to exit DNA. 
right? And uh, is this your newest endeavor? Yeah. So the the exit DNA story, I, I'm I'm really excited and proud about the way it happened because I sold my last company. It was kind of my sixth exit back in October of 2018. And at that time, I really kind of thought I was done. I was not going to start another company. I was really going to try to help other entrepreneurs and mentor and advise people. Um, and I, I was asked to speak in an event shortly after that exit. And as I was, you know, basically telling stories, sharing the mistakes I'd made, a few things that have gone right along the way. And as I walked off the stage, it was a group of entrepreneurs, very successful entrepreneurs I was speaking to in Utah. They kind of jogged up to me and said, Mac, we need your help. And I didn't realize it until after that kind of speech that what was resonating with all of these founders and entrepreneurs is not only that I had had a number of exits and it created some you know, nice outcomes, but more importantly, it was how I had done it and the fact that I never sold based on financial multiples. You know, Everyone's telling them they need to sell for an EBITDA multiple or maybe a fractional revenue multiple. And all my companies were acquired often at a premium because we'd built so much strategic value. And as I was sharing those stories, these entrepreneurs were like, I need your help. I'm not hearing that from my advisors and brokers and attorneys. And so, yeah, I sort of said, okay, I can help these people. And it aligns with my mission to really add value and help founders. So I created Exit DNA just really to mentor founders and entrepreneurs who wanted the option to exit in the future. That way they would know or they'd have confidence that they're not going to sell their business and look back and say, oh my gosh, you know, I left millions of dollars on the table because I didn't know what I was doing or I didn't realize that I could have done it differently. So yeah, that's kind of how Exit DNA got started. And now I, uh, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun doing it, working with some amazing entrepreneurs all over the world. I have, you know, uh, members from Dubai and London and Guatemala and, you know, of course, all over the U.S. So it's it's been a really fun and rewarding experience. Wow. It, it, that's that's super cool. And I think you're, I mean, obviously you've done the research and you know this already and, and it's bold on your website. It says most founders don't know how to exit. And I think that's very true, right? Like, especially if you don't have a succession plan to your kids or, or whatever, what do you do when you're just whooped and worn out and ready to retire or whatever it is? And, and how do you along the way create that value so that you do at least have that option to sell should you want to go that route, you know? Um, so it, I bet it's, it's fascinating. And, and it says only 25% of sellable companies actually create an exit. So that's, a, that's an interesting stat as well. Yeah, it's actually, um, I have a few good friends who are investment bankers and I've had this conversation now independently and separately with, with almost all of them, which tells me it's a, it's a pretty valid point, which is they all get calls that are so sad and it happens apparently very frequently. And I've had this conversation as well, where a founder or an entrepreneur wakes up one day and for some reason they need or want to sell their business. You know, they, they want to retire. They need to pay for their kid's college. They want to buy their first house. There's some driving need or desire to exit. And they have this notion in their mind that their business is worth $5 million, for example. And the investment banker and the people around them, you know, dig in and look at it and have to tell them the heartbreaking story that like, it's actually probably only worth about 2 million 
and there's really only about a 25% chance you're going to get to an exit. And so that heartbreaking and all true often story is a lot of what I'm trying to help people avoid because changing that narrative isn't actually that hard. It's that you have to know what to do and you have to get started often years before you make that phone call. And if you do that, you make the small decisions. It's kind of like compounding interest. Over time, these little smart moves you make compound into enormous exit value. And so then you can call a broker and say, hey, I want to retire in six months. Can you help me find a buyer for my business? But you'll know that you've done all the right things to really maximize that outcome. Because yeah, it's a, it's a tragedy. I mean, it, it really is sad, especially with like the baby boom generation in particular, the stats that I'm already seeing, you know, so many business owners and founders want or plan to retire in the not too distant future. So there's going to be an even bigger number of companies trying to get to the exit door. So I think the stats are just going to get worse, not better. So when we talk about, I want to mix kind of the last two things that you talked about. One, not working so hard that you can't be a father, right? And then also building a business up enough so people would want to purchase it at the value that you believe that it is at. Uh, when you talk with these business owners, and, and this might be you know, right or wrong, but I feel like when it gets to the point to sell, sell, you're telling everybody, all right, we got to, we got to make sure the numbers are right. We got to work really hard. And it's almost like you're pushing your employees to, to death because you want to get to the point where it's like, we look the best, right? We have the most profit. We're ready to go. How do you kind of advise business owners on that? Because it kind of seems like they would contradict themselves, but you are a clear example of why that is not the case. Yeah, I think it's a really good question because, um, and there, there's kind of two different things baked into that. You know, the first is the way you build your business, the way you run your business. If you decide, and it is a decision and a conscious choice you make to be, to not accept the trade-offs, you know, to be a, and you can fill in the blank. For me, it was family, right? I, I'm going to be a scale entrepreneur and focus on my family. You know, that blank could be and travel and be healthy and be, you know, philanthropic, whatever it is, but it can't be all about the business. So once you make that conscious decision, a bunch of amazing things can start to happen. My early companies, when I was still testing this whole, you know, it was a theory at the time, you know, can I pull this off? I really think people were, and my companies were shocked. It was clockwork, you know, five o'clock, and we're in the middle of a meeting, an important discussion. And, you know, Max stands up and walks out the door and everybody's like, you know, what's he doing? Where's he going? <laughs> like, I've got dinner with my daughter, you know, and the first couple of times you do that, it's shock and people might even be frustrated. And then people realize, OK, well, the meetings have to go on because Max clearly going to leave. Someone has to lead. Someone has to take good notes and follow up because Max going to ask us first thing in the morning. And so all of a sudden, I realized that the very commitment to my family that I had made was one of the things that actually made my business run better. You know, people started stepping up a little bit more because if Mac's in the meeting, Mac's probably going to run it. But what if Mac leaves? Who's going to run it? Maybe I should run it. So anyway, one sort of thought around that is just making the decision and watching your business carefully in terms of how do you um, you know, run it more efficiently. And my experience, at least, and a lot of businesses I've been involved with have sort of proven out that that actually works really well. Um, the second part of that, that, that you're asking is, you know, 
what founders should want, what entrepreneurs should want is the option to exit. That means that, you know, starting today, you make that part of your goals, part of the plans. You don't want to be forced to sell. You don't want to be forced to do anything on a time frame that you don't like. So you just start very proactively making decisions about how you design your business. And I have a bunch of really, you know, simple questions that I help founders and entrepreneurs ask to make sure that they're designing it so that a buyer likes the decisions they've made, that they think it's a, you know, uh, a valuable business, that they've really packaged up all of that strategic value in a way that people want to pay them for it. So it's just a lot of simple but conscious decisions that people make. And if they start early, it's not that work hard. Everybody needs to grind it out this quarter so we can sell the business. It's basically, you know, every week we're going to do the following three or four things so that we look back in six months or a year and like, oh my gosh, look how much you know more organized we are. Look how much more value we, we've created. So it's, I don't, I don't like when people call me and say, I want to sell my business in six months. I'm usually like, hey, good luck. I'm sure you can. <laughs> right. That's not, yeah. that's too late. I mean, that's not what I do. You know, I like to help people like for the future. So when, when buyers come knocking, uh, what would you say are the top five things that are most important that they're looking for? Yeah, awesome question. Um, because I think most people mistakenly think they are looking at looking at and for financials, and they will often say that, like, "Tell me about your revenue. Tell me about your EBITDA. Tell me about market share." But the reality, what buyers really want, are things that differentiate them in the marketplace. They want things like brands, you know, a powerful brand that they can add to their portfolio or put on top of one of their products. They want intellectual property, which will give them competitive advantages or barriers in the marketplace. So patents and trademarks and other forms of IP. Um, in a lot of cases, they want products and service offerings that they have not created themselves. And it's actually easier, faster, and better for them to buy it than to try to build it. So if you've innovated an amazing product or service, a lot of people you know, would think, gosh, we could probably compete with you, but it's actually easier for us to just buy it. Um, so products and services, and then customers are really valuable. You know, almost everyone's trying to grow or scale regardless of their size. So if you have a really interesting customer base that's loyal and passionate, that's a reason. Um, and then probably the biggest one in my own companies was I was always reasonably good at creating unique distribution opportunities. And so what I mean by that is if I've created a, a product one of my first thoughts as an entrepreneur is how do I take this product to market and how do I do that in an exclusive way? So if I invent something or create something, I want my distribution channel to be big, unique, and ideally exclusive. And so I might sign a exclusive deal to be the only, you know, coffee mug sold at this particular, you know, chain of stores around the world. Those kind of things when buyers come in, they're all over it. That, those are the things they really want, despite the fact that they want to check the box for revenue and EBITDA, they, it matters. But what they really want are those things that differentiate them. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, fascinating. So I want to um, jump a little bit into uh, into soccer real quick because you have some beautiful soccer jerseys behind you, and uh, two of them would be Messi and Neymar. And we were talking before we got on the podcast, and, and me being a, a soccer guy or a football guy, if we want to call it that from an international standpoint, you said a lot of people ask you, oh, cool, where'd you get that jersey? And you're like, oh, well, that was in Messi's apartment. 
That was over, you know, in the locker room with Neymar. Tell us how not only playing soccer, uh, but what you've been able to do with that sport on a global level. I would love to just kind of hear some stories or, or one of your best stories from that um, and how you've been involved really at an international level. And you can see pictures with Messi and Neymar right on his LinkedIn, which is fascinating to the best players in the world. Messi being the best player of all time. I would agree with that statement, Messi. <laughs> all time. Um, yeah, I mean, a big part of, of life for me has been um, trying to, to really pull together my personal passions and my interests and my family and my business. And so I've been really fortunate that those have intersected a number of times. You know, my first, as we talked about, you know, soccer was a passion growing up. My first incredible experience was actually in high school. Um, you know, I grew up here in Charlotte. Uh, I have awesome, you know, parents, but my my father was a third shift engineer when I was a kid and he was working really hard and all the time. And we didn't travel a lot. We just didn't have that kind of money or life. And so I was selected for a, a, a team to go to South America in high school and play in Brazil and Argentina. I saw um, Maradona play in Argentina for the national team. And I went to Pele's house and met Pele and, you know, got a picture with him and Jersey signed. But, but the, despite the fact it was really neat to meet Pele, it was such a powerful life experience to see this other country and this sport and all of the things that sort of came together. And again, looking backwards, I can see that that was one of those spark moments for me that said, you know what, I don't know how I'm going to do that because, you know, again, this was pre-college and, certainly was, you know, very poor when I was getting started as an entrepreneur, I could barely afford to, you know, get peanut butter and jelly. So the idea of traveling was off the table, but it was something I was so passionate about that I just kept circling back around to how can I bring soccer into my business life? How can I leverage some business skills to, you know, give me some advantages in soccer? And so fast forward, you know, a number of years, um, every business almost without fail, my first company, which was a tech company, my early clients were soccer businesses because that's the language I spoke. And uh, so, you know, over the last 25 years, I've been able to turn that into a lot of opportunities. I've had a couple of soccer businesses that did achieve some, some nice scale globally. Um, I moved to Barcelona with my family in 2014. I bought season tickets to FC Barcelona I became the, uh, with my partners, the largest partner of FC Barcelona in the United States. So I had a license to bring that brand to the U.S. And all of those things led, you know, to unique opportunities where I'm in the, you know, private family locker room at Barcelona after games and Messi and Neymar are walking in, you know, after the match. And, um, and then my, I will say one of my favorite stories uh, to give you the incredibly fast version. My favorite player growing up was a Brazilian named Ronaldinho, which some people know, some people don't, but Absolutely. he was, I, I still think one of the most gifted players that's ever, you know, graced the game. And he always had a smile on his face when he played. I just loved him, but he was retired and relatively, you know, off the grid when I got to this level of being able to, Hey, Mac might be able to get to some of these players and they might want to, talk to me for some reason, he was kind of untouchable. And I thought he's the player I'll never get. And incredibly long story short, he signed an agreement to be an ambassador for FC Barcelona. 
and they were going to make an announcement in New York at this little private event. And I got invited to the event. And uh, the funniest part of it was he was an ambassador for FC Barcelona. At the time, I was a strategic partner of FC Barcelona. But I always thought of Ronaldinho for his Brazilian team. So I snuck into the event with his Brazilian jersey tucked behind my sports jacket. And when I walked up to him, despite being surrounded by even the president of FC Barcelona was behind me, I pulled out this Ronaldinho Brazilian jersey, which is the number 10 striped jersey behind me. And he got this big grin on his face and signed it and took a picture with me. And so, um, so yeah, it was a really you know special moment for me because I thought it would never happen. So I absolutely love that. I mean, I played college soccer from 03 to 07. Uh, Ronaldinho was one of the ones that I grew up watching. Phenomenal player. I think everybody in my age group could obviously say that. But I would say thank you for bringing the sport to this country and starting to educate more people. You talk about how many kids you see walking around with Messi jerseys. That just didn't happen when I was in school. Um, soccer was just like the sport that you quit when you were 10 years old. And, you know, you even got made fun of for playing the sport. Now you see how much it's grown in the United States. Charlotte, we're blessed to be able to have an MLS team that will be playing here next year. I already have my season tickets. I'm sure you do as well. And I think our city is going to really get to understand what this sport means globally, but also see what a diverse sport it is. And I just love that the game has really grown here and that's with technology that's with people like yourself that have been able to bring that barcelona experience really to our living rooms so i guess my question here is where do you see charlotte um from the mls coming in here like what what would be you know i, I guess are you excited about it what do you think it's going to do for our city and how do you think that sport can really impact our city in a positive light yeah it's it's i have really um i would almost call them mixed not emotions, but it's interesting to me because you you hit the nail on the head with with something I experienced, which is despite the fact that I was incredibly passionate about soccer, it was my you know goals and dreams in my life. Um, but but growing up, you know, I, there was one thirty minute show on Sundays I could watch on TV called Soccer Made in Germany, and I I could not watch Ronaldinho on TV. I couldn't you know there was there was no way for me as a player or fan to access the best soccer in the world. It certainly wasn't on TV. I couldn't go to it physically. And so I, in some ways I'm, I'm really jealous of this generation that's growing up being able to, you know, watch on YouTube Ronaldinho's greatest highlights ever, because I only saw a few of them in my life before I, you know, was an adult. And so um, I'm, I'm really thankful for the country. I'm jealous. You know, I wish I was born, you know, I wish I was peaking in high school right now because I think, I would have tried to play internationally and done some of the things that, that weren't really available at my age. Um, but I think what the United States has, and you've seen it literally in the last two years for the first time in my entire life, is we have legitimately produced homegrown players who grew up with a soccer ball in their crib and their parents played the sport. That didn't happen a generation prior. You know, my parents didn't know anything about soccer when I started. Um, and we're seeing players that are literally, you know, there is an American starting for FC Barcelona. There is an American starting beside Ronaldo at Juventus. And Americans are finally not being laughed at in every other country. We're a legitimate powerhouse. And, and given our numbers and our resources, I do believe, I would have said this was naive even five years ago, I do believe the United States will be a world contender 
in the next decade, I think we have a legitimate shot. Um, MLS, I'm not a huge fan of the, the level because, again, I can watch Lionel Messi play every time he walks on the field. So I, I try to watch the best players on the earth. But from a exposure perspective, from entertainment perspective, from a business perspective, there's so much value in what's happening with Major League Soccer. And Charlotte will feel that the second it's here. I mean, you'll see the level of professionalism and attendance and broadcast quality, all those things that just really didn't exist. So I'm excited about that. Um, and, you know, personally, uh, I actually have this really, I hate to be 007 about it, but I have this really big project I've been working on for some time that I think is, that I'm about to announce that I think is a really compelling opportunity to connect United States soccer fans and enthusiasts with some of the best opportunities in the soccer world. And again, that stuff wasn't possible many years ago. I actually filed a patent, my first patent after all these years for something that I think is going to really change the way American fans and consumers interact with the sport globally. So, um, so I'm really excited about it at, at pretty much every level. I love that, man. And I, I know I kind of hijacked this from a soccer standpoint. You know, you mentioned not being able to see the sport. I have a box full of VCR tapes from 1998 World Cup where we recorded every single game so we could literally watch the best. Because in 1998, when I was 14 years old, that was with the, I needed to know what the best sport looked like. I needed to know what the best players were doing on the pitch. And it's very difficult when you don't get to see that, right? And soccer is such a chess game. It's, such, it's all about movement. It's about positioning. It's about 11 players moving as one. And so I love that you mentioned that. The other thing that, that I think is fascinating is I run a, um, a group here in the United States called Fulham FC USA Supporters. And it's amazing the connection that we can have with the club in London, whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't even watch the Premier League. You couldn't understand that connection. Now, I can watch every single game, and my team got relegated. We're in the championship. We're not even in the Premier League. And yep. I can still watch every single game. Tomorrow at 10 a.m., I'll be able to watch them on television. And we have this personal connection with that club because there have been so many Americans that have played there. But now that club has that personal connection with us where they've literally made us an official supporters group of Fulham. If you go on their website, they have that. They're trying to set up trips in the future for us to be able to go to Craven Cottage. And all of that experience just makes you feel like that family. And I feel like once people get exposed to that even more, Americans will fall in love with the sport. And it's for, it's, it's for people like you, man. That have, that have that business mind that take your passion for it and bring it here. So I'm, I'm, I'm giddy over here. That's all I got to say. I'm, I'm, I'm fanboying well, over, over all of this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing I, I actually would say to anyone, you know, and, and I witnessed this with my wife as a, as a really good example. I think people think of soccer, you know, it's, it's fair as an American. If, if it's not your passion, you know, you think, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, MLS, and, and you put them on kind of a parallel level. Or you may think of the icons in the U.S., the Tiger Woods and the Michael Jordans and LeBron Jameses that are these icons. And I try to explain to people that have never been to an international soccer match, if you go to a game in Turkey or Brazil or Greece or Barcelona, you know, the it is not the same thing as going to even an NBA final. I mean, an average, you know, when Real Madrid and Barcelona play, the number of people watching that match is about 10 times the Super Bowl, and that can be on a Tuesday. It's not even comparable. When I saw Maradona play in uh, Argentina, 
people say, oh, he was one of the greatest players ever. To Argentinians, there are Argentinians and people all over the world that worshipped him like a god and literally walked for over a week to get to the stadium to watch him play. I mean, they, they would walk for an entire week from the remote parts of Argentina That's to watch insane. him play. It's, <laughs> it is really hard to compare. When my wife went to her very first Barcelona match, wasn't a soccer fan, knew I was excited about it, didn't want to watch it on TV with me. After that match, and it happened to be an amazing match, Messi scored five goals in a Champions League match. We were there, but um, she said that now, that moment now rates in the top five experiences of my life. And on that list was like kids and marriage. I mean, thankfully she had marriage on the list. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, it was like she was not a soccer fan and she was like, that was incredible. So I always encourage people if you're traveling anywhere in Europe or anywhere in the world, like even if you're not a soccer fan, trust me, go to a match. There is nothing like it. That is really, really cool. That is cool. All Absolutely. right, honey, <laughs> we're going to Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, going back to exit DNA, like if, if someone wants to engage uh, you at, at exit DNA, sort of how does that program work and, and how would they – uh, begin that process with you. Yeah. So I, uh, I have a, a website, you know, primary kind of personal website, maclackey.com where I try to, you know, blog and just help people and talk about things that I care about and that help entrepreneurs exit DNA is, is.com is a, is a site that is specific to that program. Um, so people can always kind of, you know, go there, learn more, but really the process is, is pretty simple. You know, I am looking for a, not quite one-to-one. -one. I do exit DNA in small group cohorts because I like to really work with founders in kind of a small group. Uh, I do a lot of live sessions. And so despite the fact our members are from all over the world, I'm doing, you know, live, you know, small group coaching. So I'm really looking for those entrepreneurs that are ideally, you know, already at seven figures, eight figures, and they know that despite their talent as a designer or an engineer or whatever they've built, that they are not exit experts. And if they wanna sell their company in the future, they need to talk to someone like me just to see if it's a fit. Um, when people join my program, it's really, really efficient. We spend the first eight weeks where I do this kind of live coaching and share basically everything I've learned over the last 26 years. I give them all the frameworks and tools and everything. And then I support them for the rest of the year, bringing in CPAs and attorneys and all kinds of experts that I've used over the years to help them really turn the dials in their company. So it's a it's a simple process in that um, you know once people join, they're a part of this really compelling group of other founders on the journey that are building amazing companies, exiting companies right now. You know I have two members that will exit probably in the next thirty days for fifty plus million. You know and and uh, so it's all different levels, but you're surrounding yourself with a group of people that have a similar vision of, I want to maximize the value of my exit. So that's kind of how it works. Very cool. That's awesome, man. Mac, this has been a, um, a pleasure. I could talk to you for seven hours and I'm probably <laughs> going to have to schedule lunch with you soon because this has been, um, been really cool. But, you know, congrats on, on all of your success. Congrats on being able to not only be a, a phenomenal business owner who has bought and sold multiple companies, but to really be a great dad as well. I think the 
um, the epitome of your success. And when you look back on it, it's not going to be how much money you made or how many businesses you left, but that you were there for your daughter. And that's something that I try to do for my kids. And I'm blessed that I work with the Dunstan group that enables me to have dinner with my children every night. And I can't wait to be that person that is at school and teaching them uh, and coaching them in soccer. So I think that's something that you should absolutely be so proud of. And I know that your daughter, um, I'm sure, tells all of her friends the same thing. Like my dad's awesome, but my dad was also there. And I think there's a lot of business owners that can't say the same thing. So, you know, kudos to that. Absolutely. Well, until, uh, until next time, thank you guys so much for listening. Please like, share, and comment. Check out Mac on LinkedIn. Follow Exit DNA. Check out all the businesses that he's been a part of. He is a phenomenal person that came from Charlotte that has done great things. We should all be proud of what he's been able to achieve, but also he just seems like an awesome guy that, uh, that is great for our community. Uh, until next time, you have been listening to this episode of the Brand Builders Podcast. You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.